This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. There were many headlines coming out of this morning's coronavirus task force update, a lot of it having to do with um, health care and treatments uh, really aimed at controlling the virus or treating the virus at the virus, excuse me. Um, So I do want to get make some sense out of it because there were a lot of headlines. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips is back with us. She's chief clinical officer, executive VP at Providence St. Joseph Health. Uh, on the phone uh, once again from Everett, Washington. Remember, we've talked with her several times over the last few weeks, and uh, her hospital, the system, is where the first U.S. case of the virus was confirmed. Uh, Dr. Compton Phillips, nice to have you back with us. Forgive me as I stumbled at the top, but I was reading through some of the headlines and just trying to remember all the things that we got out of the conference uh, this morning. The president touting a malaria drug as a pot- potential uh, coronavirus treatment. You also um, heard things about early coronavirus drug trials yielding mixed results. Where are we? You're there on the front line. What's 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 going on? What do you see as potential realistic treatments for this? Yeah, you know, I, I think what's really important is for us to have a systematic approach to this um, that, that we can end up playing whack-a-mole if we go after the next bright, shiny object. And so what we've been really doing here on the West Coast, which at the moment, um, you know, we're, we're neck and neck with New York, not that we want to race to the front of the line for this, um, but for having the most cases um, in our system right now, we're treating, uh, it's upwards of about 800 people that either have known or suspected coronavirus. Um, and we're trying to do several things. One is we're trying to make sure that we can triage people appropriately and get them to the right location. So that if you happen to have uh, symptoms of the virus and because the testing's taking so long, we can't definitively say, we do everything we can to take care of you in your home if, if you can, are stable enough to be in your home so we don't overwhelm the healthcare system, right? We're trying to make sure that in the hospital, if you go, have to go into the hospital, we're putting you with other patients that also have um, COVID as well, and so that we can minimize use of the PPE. And then if you need acute care, we have several uh, ongoing trials of medications, including um, the the malarial drugs that the president talked about today, including some of the direct antivirals um, that you heard about in the past few days. So so I think by thinking through this um, systematically rather than, you know, uh, ping, 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 you know, all over the place, um, that we can actually kind of get a handle on what's going on. Well, and Dr. Compton Phillips, it's really interesting insights. And I also wanted to ask you um, what you're seeing, because one of the headlines that I think has grabbed a lot of people is the population that's being infected. And it feels like the narrative has shifted there as well in terms of many more young people being not just diagnosed, but hospitalized. Are you seeing that? Have you seen that? And what should we be taking from this latest data? Yeah, you know, that was an interpretation by the news previously that young people don't get infected. Um, in all the articles and conversations that we've had in, in, with the physicians in China, with the physicians in Italy, um, young people do get infected. Mm-hmm. It's just that they tend to recover at a much higher rate. And so that the mortality is higher 
in patients that are older and people that have underlying health conditions, but young people absolutely get infected, and we're seeing that same thing here. Um, They end up less often in the ICU on a per capita basis, but they do end up um, seriously ill, and it's one of the reasons why it's really, we, we we are doing everything by hook and by crook to make sure that we have enough capacity in ICUs because we want to save every single person that comes to us with this bad disease. Um, and not not have people, you know, dying for lack of access to health care. Is there some medication out there, perhaps existing, a drug that's already in the system already, you know, the FDA has pretty much signed on, off on that we can see then maybe another use of? Um, we have actually tested a couple different drugs uh, that have, in, in other kinds of viral diseases, have antiviral activity. Um, that have not worked, but we're absolutely looking at the array. And in fact, that the um, malaria drug that the president mentioned, hydroxychloroquine, mm-hmm. is one that's been on the market for decades. Um, and so that, that has shown early promise, particularly in China, um, which is why we're standing up the study here as well. Um, and then the antiviral drugs, while it hadn't been approved yet, it was um, being developed for Ebola. Um, and so but had another use, and, and that's the one right now that we have a couple different clinical trials going on to see, really, if this does work. Dr. Crump Phillips, only uh, about 40 seconds left here. Uh, Got to ask you, since we've talked a lot about it, testing, is it ramping up? How soon will it be, in your estimation, to the point where it's really rolling in an effective way? Testing is still a dramatic bottleneck, um, and so part of the challenge is that if for every patient that wants to be tested or every person that wants to be tested and doesn't have major symptoms, it means people with significant disease in a hospital somewhere is not getting tested. And so having, having really clear, um, when you have a shortage, you have to figure out who gets what first. And we are in a shortage situation. And as we ramp up over the next month, it'll get better. But right now, we really need to use those tests for the people who need them the most. Listen, we always thank uh, the time that you give us. Uh, Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips, thank you, thank you. Chief Clinical Officer, Executive Vice President at Providence St. Joseph Health, uh, on the phone from Everett, Washington. And as we've been saying, Jason, they've been dealing with it from day one. So really seeing how it uh, grows and how, you know, what, what is working in terms of treatment. But you can see still a struggle. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Let's get down to D.C. Ryan Teague Beckwith. I got to say, you are so good on the Twitters, man. Like, I follow (laughs) you pretty relentlessly. um, And you're prolific. And amid all of that, you're also keeping an eye on the administration and its reaction. Uh, What do we need to know at this point? Uh, Yeah, I think it can best be explained by a change in my policy against swearing on Twitter. (laughs) Um, I've decided to allow it now uh, during the uh, course of this. Um, look, the, the, it's like December 9th, 1941. What, we're at the phase now where the federal government is mounting a response that is, uh, you know, involving uh, sort of the whole of government approach. Um, and so that's the good news. Um, the bad news is that that's where we should have been two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so the delay in that... Uh, centralized approach, the delay in the acknowledgement of the problem, um, the delay in uh, reaction, which has led to, I think, like a knock-on effect in that these people you see on TV who just aren't, still aren't taking it seriously. Um, all of those things, we're going to pay the price for those. 
mm. in the days to come. And, and ironically, that's when people will, will, I think, who haven't been following this closely, will start to feel the most panic. But we will actually have a much better handle on things at that point than we did when no one was panicking or when people weren't panicking enough. I do want to ask you, Ryan, though, in terms of the administration, the president and the team that are dealing with this on so many different levels, whether it's defense, whether it's health, whether it's financial, um, I do feel like there is a bit of a rhythm here. But I do feel like we're also I know things are getting passed, but I still feel like the sense of urgency of getting things done is not quite there yet. Am I wrong? No, I don't. You know, one of my friends who's Canadian likes to point out that um, after Pearl Harbor, the Canadian Canadian Parliament was actually like in session and voted to like go to war, like on behalf of the United States, like and actually like enter the war. Like, a, you know, a, it took a day for Congress to to get into session to actually declare war against Japan. Um, you know, we just aren't having that kind of a fast response. I am struck a little bit by how much the paradigm in the world has shifted. But when you talk to people in, in Washington, you're still hearing it's, you know, the same sort of, you know, well, there's been some pieces online. Well, you know, we shouldn't deficit spend. Like, I think this is an okay time to deficit spend. Most economists would agree that sort of Keynesian approach here would, would be merited in this situation. Um, and the, the, like you're, you're right, the sense of urgency and doing something quickly and, and coming up with a response is not there. The Senate went into recess. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the House bill kind of came over and, and they were watching on Twitter to see if Trump would okay it. And like the House bill is just the first step. Right. I and mean, this is, you know, like I, this I is can't imagine during the financial crisis that the Senate was in recess and like, you know, or, or we'll get back to you, um, General Motors, you know, to see if we can help you. Uh, right. So well, you remember correctly, though, they did vote down the first stimulus. Uh, in real time, uh, like as the stock market was open and the stock market did crash. So, they, they but but then, but right, but then, but then seeing that they came back, like it's interesting that you have you have GM and Mary Barr saying, you know, we'll help you create, you know, uh, do a kind of a war assembly line of defibril- defibrillators and stuff. So, I I guess in terms of specific programs, do you have any insight in terms of um, what we might hear? Whether it's are we for, getting checks, for airlines, like what's checks, happen? yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is uh, definitely a bipartisan agreement on um, sending cash uh, to um, directly to households to help get them through this. I think that the the differences is how much and should we means test it. Um, that is to say, should we not send the checks to people who are wealthy? Uh, how do we get the checks out? Uh, how soon can we do it? And and how much? And, and do we do it on a recurring basis, or do we do it just one time and then wait and see and do it again? Um, all of those are big questions that would need to be resolved before something like that could be done. But I think that there's definitely uh, a consensus of the things that need to be done. We're just not seeing the, um, that, uh, that sort of unified drive to do it um, yet. But yeah. I think that uh, we will see that. I, like I said, I, I feel like the government right now is like back in the days when you had to use a slow modem, you know, and it was sort of like page loading and you could sort of watch it load like line by line um, on your yeah. web browser. Right. Yeah. It's a little like that. 
Yeah, we're just waiting for that AOL dial-up sound at this point. All right, Ryan Teague back with. Thank you so much. Always good to uh, catch up with you. Highly recommend following him on Twitter, uh, minute to minute, uh, keeping an eye on everything that's going on in the nation's capital and across all of our coronavirus coverage. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's a team sport when it comes to comes to covering Wall Street. We know that at Bloomberg. Earlier in the week, we talked to Max Abelson about Wall Street being blindsided. Today, that tough guy culture. And as I said earlier in the week, few know this culture like Max Abelson does. He, as I said, worked on a great team to do this. Michelle Davis, Lenan Nguyen, and Sri Natarajan, all giving you a sense of, man, this macho culture, Max, uh, not going well amid this virus outbreak. Tell us what you found. Talking to you, Jason, I can honestly tell you it improves my spirits, and uh, I've been feeling low today. I'm not, I'm not kidding. So it's, it, you're so right. It's so nice to be reminded that uh, I work on such a great team. And a quick shout-out to Stefania and uh, our, our rotator Olivia and Polly. Uh, it really did take a lot of people to get the snapshot. And, and what our snapshot of Wall Street showed, and, and honestly, this in some ways really came to us, it's not as if we were not chasing this, was that we found, you know, actual fevers on the trading floor of Goldman Sachs, which, you know, as a bank, like all of their big banks, you know, the message from the top is, if you're feeling sick, go home. Yeah. But what we're finding is that there's this really purebred Wall Street pressure. Now, some of this pressure, Jason, is internal from people who are making themselves feel this way, and, and, and some of the pressure is coming from middle managers or people's bosses, to get to work and to and to literally get into the office, even when the demands of the public uh, health crisis is to stay at home. People are feeling pressure on Wall Street, the, the, those nonstop demands to get into the office. And that that is um, that's that, that's a strange dynamic during a during a deadly pandemic. God, the one line in your story about how bankers are saying that private you know, privately, they're saying that they'd be relieved if the markets would temporarily shut because, you know, then they can, if they're not feeling well, go home and not have any kind of consequences. But it does speak to the culture. We think so much has changed, you know, from decades ago from Wall Street, the movie, but there's still a lot of that out there. Uh, Look, I think I think you're right. And, you know, I just want to um you know, something about a crisis is so clarifying. It helps you sort of look with clarity on things that we kind of take for granted. I think it's important that as journalists, um, Carol, I've gotten to know you so well over the years, Jason, you as well. You know, it's important that we acknowledge among ourselves that there's a pressure mm-hmm. in journalism, too, to um, have, have to, to sort of embrace a moment um, and the cooking no matter what. And I think that, you know, it's a cousin to that same Wall Street culture. And, you, you know, it's, it's certainly um, we're, we're seeing it all around. It, it's not just, by the way, inside the big banks in Midtown. Michelle Davis, my favorite anecdote that Michelle Davis has ever gotten probably is, is in this story. She found people in Milwaukee who, who had to go into their offices to be more than watching the Wells Fargo workers in a nearby building bring their computers out to go home. And these people wanted to go home, too, but their bosses wouldn't let them. Yeah. I have to say, can I just, Max, reading your story, I felt the same way. I do feel like that there is something in the media world, the same thing that, you know, we don't run away from fires. We like jump into them, um, you know, and we, when there is a crisis, um, we all kind of want to be out there reporting on it and be involved. And I think it's it's very similar. And I think there is pressure to, you know, 
be there and because this is our job. This is what we signed up to do. I think that the that the compromise, uh, a compromise that not just exists within capitalism, but exists within you know being healthy and and being members of a, of, a, of a public health community, is to work as hard as you want to, but to work from home when, yeah. when the government and when companies are telling us to. I know that that's not physically possible for literally everyone. You know, my college roommate, Tom Canal, is a nurse right now in East New York, and mm. the grocery worker at Union Market around the corner from me in Park Slope here in Brooklyn are, are behind the counter. Not everyone has the luxury to earn a paycheck while we're getting from home to uh, Jeff Green, our, our Bloomberg colleague, wrote a story with Michelle Davis about 100 million workers in America who don't have uh, paid sick leave. Uh, of course, a shout out to our colleagues in Seattle who wrote an amazing story I highly recommend to all our listeners about the drivers for your Amazon packages. Are you folks yeah. listening, ordering Amazon packages? And I know I am. Amazon deliverers got one wipe each from their boss before their shifts saying good luck. Yeah. I, I think it's just, it's just a reality that's across Wall Street, but, but across corporate America right now, it's, and it's absolutely fascinating to see. It absolutely is, and it's a must-read, not surprisingly, one of the most read stories in the terminal because it goes straight to the heart of Wall Street culture where you make your living, Max. We're so grateful to you, and you know these are the sorts of conversations great that story. we need to keep having to some yeah. extent because I will say from a personal perspective, Carol – Social distancing is successful, I think, more so when there's peer pressure, you know, when people essentially are able to say, hey, great to see you. But if you don't mind, I'm just going to step back here a little bit or I'm not going to take my kid to a playground or I'm not going to do this sorts of thing. Like all of us being in this together means we have to sort of be out there and and sometimes make the make the tough choices. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Thursday. Doug, of course, just breaking down the numbers. We've got just about... uh, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, excuse me, left in today's trading session. Lamar Villery is back with us, portfolio manager at Villery Funds. They've got roughly $2 billion in assets under management. Lamar joining us on the phone from New Orleans. So, Lamar, good to have you here on a day where we're actually seeing some gains in the equity markets. Um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, this environment, because you guys have been having a tough time, to be fair, in terms, I'm just looking at some of the performances um, that you've you know, had, I think uh, year to date, you're down 26%. I know the whole whole market. But even if I go back a little bit longer, um, what's been tough about managing in this environment? Sure. Well, you know, obviously, it's a, a tale of two markets. Um, you know, we, 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 we held up pretty well last year. Uh, really, the, the big lag last year was that we were overweight cash, which was, you know, last year was a year where you could buy anything and it went up. Um, we're still we're still overweight to cash. Now we are a small cap manager, uh, and small caps unfortunately have uh, underperformed uh, so far year to date, and they underperformed last year. So we're we're swimming uh, swimming against the tide a little bit there. But uh, you know the nice thing is now we're situated and we've got some cash, um, and 
that we're uh, we're able to do some things that uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of our peers are not able to, given the, the difficulties in the market. Over the but last small weeks. but small caps were up about twenty four percent last year, right? They As were, a group. but they still lagged large caps significantly. So. I uh, do want to bring you one uh, headline crossing the Bloomberg right now, uh, confirming some earlier reporting. The State Department telling Americans not to travel abroad, just coming right out and saying that, uh, Carol, that uh, folks yeah. uh, should stay at home, stay in the country. And you know, there was some earlier reporting, I believe, that said if you are overseas uh, and an American, uh, get home or plan to stay where you are because at some point things are going to get uh, – shut down a little bit more. Well, as my parents would probably have said about this, well, it kind of makes sense, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit logical. Um, we are talking with Lamar Villery, uh, Portfolio Manager at Villery Fund. So you were saying, no, I understand that they lag, but is there, you know, in terms of positioning, do you feel like in terms of the opportunities that were out there in the small cap universe that you guys just made um, some misses here? Uh, no, actually, we, we, we outperformed the, uh, you know, if you're looking at the uh, the balance fund, we're going to lag, of course, because we hold a bunch of bonds. So okay. all in all, our, our equities actually outperformed uh, even the S&P, even though we were small cap and kind of swimming upstream and have the cash. Uh, we, our equities actually have held up fine. Uh, but, you know, obviously, in the last several weeks, we've had the same challenges as everybody. And so where do you put money to work here, Lamar? Sure. So, you know, what we would, you know, there's kind of two, you know, if you're going to put money in the market right now, there's really two schools of thought. Number one is, hey, you know, there are these these companies and these stocks that are just massively beat down that have lost, you know, 70 percent of their value. You know, some of these restaurant, hospitality, travel stocks, Um, you know, I think there's still too much uncertainty, as you just said, with the State Department announcement, there's still too much uncertainty to understand exactly how deep things could go here. And, you know, these, these companies, a lot of them have a whole lot of debt. So uh, rather than jump into those, I think the better play or the more um, the, sort of the safer and more prudent play right here is to invest in companies that really aren't impacted by uh, the, the, the COVID situation. So companies that um, even even might even be helped and arguably helped by it, but at least aren't hurt by it, but that are still trading significantly off of their highs. Uh, so basically you're looking at premium type quality uh, companies that, that are trading at a nice little discount. Here. So where have you been maybe committing? So are you committing new money, Lamar, or give us an idea in terms of names that you think are interesting at this point and that um, may yeah. be immune from the virus? Sure. So, so um, you know, obviously the, the healthcare, um, one of the companies that, that we hold, that's actually traded off and is even down a little bit today in the strong market is a company called Steris. And Steris is the global leader in contamination control. So this is, you know, they benefit from hospital usage. Um, any attention to infection prevention benefits them. So you would look at this and think, gosh, these guys, this should be one of these stocks that's really popping on, on the coronavirus scare. Well, it's not. And the reason it's not is people are looking and saying, well, they're, they're liable to miss their quarter because, the number of procedures, uh, elective procedures, is going to go down, and, and I couldn't agree with that more. However, if you're investing for the long run, uh, it's pretty hard to make the argument that there isn't going to be an increased focus on infection prevention going forward. So um, this is the type of thing which is exactly where you'd want to be in the long run, but investors, I think, are looking very short-term and just sort of dropping everything, and this is one that can be picked up at a, at a reasonable uh, valuation. All right. Lamar Villery, thank you so much. Portfolio Manager for Villery Funds, uh, looking after about $2 billion down there in New Orleans. Uh, Stay safe. Uh, 
you guys know a thing or two about hunkering down. Uh, I know, having dealt with a lot of natural disasters, uh, this certainly is something uh, that is quite widespread. We're dealing with it, Carol, across the money markets, across economies, uh, small businesses, big businesses, as Lamar was alluding to. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.